You are listening to Episode 4 of Full Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 7, Betris System, 2352, June 4. The ship was settling down. I could feel it as I left the bridge and headed down to drop off the portable and the program cube in my locker. It wasn't anything I could really put a finger on, more of a general sense. We were still running emergency lighting, which meant the main reactor generators were still offline. Given the burning I'd seen in the data cabinets, I was just as happy to have them stay offline until control runs had been thoroughly checked. I didn't fancy having a reactor go critical on me just 200 meters away. I was feeling almost chipper when I stepped back through the hatch into environmental, until I got a good whiff. What's the matter, I asked as I dogged the hatch. Brill, Diane, and Francis were gathered around the console. It was still showing diagnostics. They looked up when I spoke, and Brill said, What do you mean? The ship's had an EMP damage. No, what smells? I asked. Diane laughed. It's environmental. It's supposed to smell. But I could see Brill's nostrils moving, and she said, He's right. The smell is off. Diane said, Can't be. Most of the smell's from the scrubbers, and I checked them when I first got here. Brill said, Check them again. While they went off to check the scrubbers, I turned to the console. Something wrong with it? Francis shook his head. No, just waiting for ShipNet. ShipNet's up! He looked startled and punched the reset to kill the diagnostic package. The console came up with the standard displays. Water was good. Air was good, except CO2 was climbing. Not a lot, but definitely on the rise. Brill! Francis called. I heard Diane say, Uh-oh. Francis and I looked at each other and bolted for the scrubber cabinets. When we got there, Brill was already on the horn to Mr. Kelly. Yes, sir, she said. All four scrubbers have been contaminated. I don't know by what, sir, but the matrices are already showing deterioration. CO2 levels okay? I heard him ask. Brill looked at Francis, who nodded but pointed upwards. Yes, sir, for now, but they're climbing already. She was looking to Francis to confirm what she was saying as he was saying it, and he nodded firmly. Do what you can be, he said. Let me know if it gets worse. I saw environmental out. She turned to Diane. What do we have? she asked. Don't know, B. Never seen anything like it. It's like they've been poisoned by something, she said, with her face right up to the material. It's supposed to be a reddish-brown, but this is turning a kind of blue, like the phycorythrin is breaking down in the cells. This was not good. The phycorythrin was the pigment tracer that identified the photosynthesis receptors in the bacteria. No phycorythrin, no photosynthesis, no carbon dioxide scrubbing. Would particulates do it? I asked. What kind of particulates? Brill asked. I don't know. Smoke? Burned circuits? Melting plastic? I don't know. When I was on the bridge and first brought up the minimal ship net, we were okay on O2 and CO2, but the particulates are really high. I bipped it to you, Brill, remember? Yeah, I do, but that shouldn't cause this. That's what the field plates are for, to pull that crap out of the air before it hits the matrix. True, I said, and went around to look at the field plates on the number two scrubber. I opened the inspection door we used when we cleaned the plates and looked inside. Brill, shouldn't there be a plate in here? I asked, knowing the answer myself, but not really believing what I was seeing. Where else would it be? She asked, coming around the scrubber and crouching down to look in beside me. I don't know, I said, but I'd expect it to be right there where those empty mounting brackets are. Francis and Diane came to look over our shoulders. Pixies? Francis asked. Too heavy for a pixie, Diane said. Those things mass a good five kilos. Brill said, well, if they were fast pixies, maybe they stole the plate while the gravity was out. That's what happened, I said. They all looked at me. Ish, Diane said, we were kidding about the pixies. I grinned. I'm not. 
I got down and stuck my head in the door so I could look up to where the other half of the field mechanism ran across the top of the intake vent. Just as I thought, my voice echoing weirdly from inside the cabinet, Pixies. Brill pulled me out so she could look up. Damn it, she said. When she pulled her head out of the scrubber, I could see she was already calculating. How fast can we change out all four scrubbers? All of us working, four stands for all four, but we have upwards of half a day before they begin scrubbing again, Diane confirmed. When I'd first come aboard, I was confused by this constant statement of the obvious. Now I recognized it as a kind of mutual reality check for the group to make sure we all really did know what the other person was talking about. Francis, Brill said, go run the numbers. How much time do we have? He bolted for the console, and Brill called in Mr. Kelly. You'll need to see this, sir. It's serious, and it won't take long. He was there in less than two ticks. What you got, Brill? he asked. She took him back to the scrubber and showed him where the field plate was supposed to be in the number two scrubber and then pointed upwards. What the... He said as he dragged his head out of the scrubber. How'd it get up there and what's holding it? Magnetism, I suggested. Brill called to Francis. Francis, would you kill the power on the number two scrubber, please? Securing power to number two, now. When he said now, the missing scrubber plate dropped with a clank and bounced out of the inspection hatch to land at Mr. Kelly's feet. We all looked at each other. How are they connected to the base? Mr. Kelly asked. Brill answered, they just sit in those sockets. While field power is flowing, they're locked down magnetically. That's it, he said. Lost power, lost the lock, grav failed long enough for it to unseat, and when the power came back on, the field kicked in before the gravity could pull it back down, and it went up. No field, dirty matrices, dead bacteria, Brill finished. How much time, Francis? I need to know now. Ten hours until CO2 saturation, he called back. Oh, shit, Mr. Kelly said. Brill kicked in then. Start stripping them down, people. Start with number two. Pull the frame. Strip them out as fast as you can. Diane and I had done this as a team for so long, we had three of the Matrix frames out before she finished speaking. Francis was coming up to help while Brill turned back to Mr. Kelly. Can you get me somebody in here to fix these plates while we clear the matrices? I don't want to put good Matrix back in the pollution stream. He pulled out his comb and started making calls. With Brill and Francis helping, we got number two stripped down and restarted within a stand. Mr. Kelly himself fixed that field plate and tested it for us to make sure it was working. While he was working, his backup team, including Bert Benson, Janice Ivanov, and Arvid Shaw, came in. He set them each to work on the field collector plates for the other scrubbers, and by the time we'd finished with number two's frames and had them reloaded, the other three were ready for us. Francis, Diane, and I started on number one while Brill consulted with Mr. Kelly. It's going to be desperately close, Fred, she said. I didn't like that she was calling him Fred. It meant things really were as bad as I thought. I know, B. We can add more oxygen, but we've got to get rid of the CO2. How much calcium hydroxide do we have? About eight tons, but how do we get enough air over it? Calcium hydroxide was a natural CO2 absorbent. We kept a supply on board, but I wasn't sure what we used it for. This was the right moment, but the problem was surface area. I kept slopping frames as fast as I could. Diane was pulling them out and handing them to Francis and I. We were pulling dying matrix out as fast as we could split the frames, and we were darn fast. Brill was asking, can we rig up some kind of canister filter with it, like they use in the little ships? Mr. Kelly had his tablet out now and was running figures. Too much air. The canisters would calcify into limestone too quickly in these conditions. We need some way to expose as much surface as we can. I finished stripping out the latest matrix and bent to stretch my spine, I shouted. Diane handed me the next frame, and I didn't stop working. As I said, the spine, it's like a big straw. I finished stripping matrix and tossed the empty frame into the wash-me pile. Diane handed me the next frame. It's only two meters wide. It's 144 meters long. Spread the calcium hydroxide on the floor. CO2 is heavier than oxygen. It'll pool between the hatch combings. 
If the powder calcifies, we can scrape it up and put down fresh powder. Drop the limestone out the lock. Diane handed me another frame. Mr. Kelly was running the numbers. We finished stripping down number one and broke out the hoses to wash it all down before breaking out fresh matrix. We started laying down fresh frames, Francis and I making them up, Diane spraying them with fresh bacteria, and Brill ring-hanging them before he stopped running numbers. It's going to get awful stuffy in here, but it might work. We need to increase the flow or the CO2 will pool in the lower parts of the fore and aft sections. Brill said, run a long exhaust duct from the boat deck to the after section. Pull everybody you can out of there. Pipe the air from the boat deck into the after section and let the pressure differentials bring the fresh air back. That should set up a little bit of circulation and keep the highest levels of CO2 running across the surface. He added that to his calculations and we were almost done with number one. The problem wasn't in getting them rebuilt. The problem was in the time it would take for the algae to bloom and begin scrubbing. We were shaving off a few valuable minutes by working quickly, but we were short by too many minutes to make much difference if we didn't manage to control the overall level. Better, he announced. Maybe enough. He pulled out his comp, headed for the hatch, and was binding up people and equipment before he'd gotten out of the section. We just kept building frames. Number one was up, two more to go. I looked at the chrono. 2200. If I were still alive at 0900, we'd probably make it. We started on number three, and nobody talked. We just worked. By 2330, we had all the scrubbers rebuilt and settled down to watch the numbers. CO2 was still climbing, but the engineering crew was still rigging the ductwork. Some of the deck gang had been put to work, spreading the calcium hydroxide on the deck and the spine. They were shooting for a five-centimeter depth across both sides of the spine with a half-a-meter span open in the middle to walk on. It would take almost all the powder we had to cover that amount, but it gave us a very large surface area to stream the CO2-laden air across. By 0200, the CO2 was almost at alarm-critical levels, and the crew had started up the blowers to push the heavy air all the way down the spine. As the pressure differential between the bow and stern section built up, the air they were pumping aft began working forward through the spine and across the absorbent powder. By 0400, the CO2 levels had stopped rising. Just moving around was difficult. Everybody was yawning, of course, and that might have had something to do with everybody being exhausted, too. The air felt even heavier than normal and environmental. Still, we were cautiously optimistic. By 0500, the CO2 levels were rising again. The engineering crew investigated the spine and found the powder had set up a crust. Where the sorbent powder of the calcium hydroxide had reached its capacity, the crust was preventing additional absorption. We all went out with brooms and just hit the crust to break it up and to keep the powder exposed to the air. It was hard to move. The broom became very heavy. By 0800, the CO2 levels were falling. The scrubbers are coming back online a bit faster than we expected. It was still hard to breathe, and everybody had miserable headaches, but I began to see a few smiles. And by 0900, we knew we had it beaten. Two of the four scrubbers were stripping out the CO2 at maximum capacity, and the third was running at 50%. The last was kicking upwards at 20%. By 0930, the overheads pipped, and the captain's voice came over the speakers. This is the captain speaking. Full power should be restored within the hour. The CO2 and O2 levels are getting back to optimal range. The sail generators will be repaired this afternoon. We'll be a couple of days late, but we'll arrive, thanks to your hard work, dedication, and ingenuity. You make me proud. That is all. After a few moments, the announcer came back on with, all hands secure from general quarters, secure from general quarters. Set normal underway operations, 
first section has the watch. I clambered up off the deck where I'd been sprawled and relieved Francis, who was the last person to assume the watch before General Quarters. We all chuckled when he said, Mr. Wong, ops are finally normal. We had some scheduled maintenance, but we didn't do it. You may relieve the watch. <laughs> I relieve you, Mr. Gartner, I said. I have the watch. Chapter 8, Petra System, 2352, June 5. The captain was as good as her word, and power came up within a few ticks of her announcement. Brill sat with me to keep me company, and awake, for the remaining half of my watch. We even managed to repair the three toasted environmental sensor arrays I'd found up by the port bow. The Lois had taken a hit, but she was still with us. Diane came back after a couple hours' sleep, a shower, and some food. Cookie had set up a serving line with Pip and Sarah, and they were making omelets for those who wanted them and sandwiches for those that didn't. It had been a long night for everybody, and without full power, Cookie had been reduced to scrambling to feed us. He did well with what he had. I was really proud of him. Diane relieved me and tried to shoo Brill off, too, but she wouldn't go. I didn't stay around for the thrilling conclusion of their discussion, but trundled my butt off to my bunk, where I no sooner fell into it than the watchstander was telling me I had to get out of it and go relieve the watch again. Shower, fresh clothes, coffee, watch. I found Diane wide awake with a funny smile on her face, and I wondered what it was about until I looked behind the console and found Brill sacked on the deck. We had a quiet discussion and decided we should wake her and send her to bed. This time, when Diane suggested she'd be more comfortable in her bunk, she went. Besides, I told her, it sets a terrible example for the help. She laughed at that and patted me on the shoulder before staggering out of the section. I relieved Diane and settled down to see what maintenance had backed up on us. It wasn't a lot, but it kept me awake. The VSI was an interesting experience, walking through the crusted calcium hydroxide. I wondered how we were going to get rid of it. When Francis came up to relieve me for the mid-watch, the section was pretty much back to normal. I gave him the full list of maintenance I'd done, along with the shorter list of things that needed doing, but I just hadn't had time for. He relieved me, and I managed to get all the way into my bunk before falling asleep. I didn't manage to get out of my clothes or anything like that, but I wasn't complaining. I thought I was tired enough to sleep the 24 hours until I had to go back on watch, but I didn't even make it to lunchtime. I might have, except for the treacherous bladder. It kept insisting that I'd drain it or it would do something juvenile and unpleasant, and as a result I got up around 10.30 and took care of business. It's surprising how alive you can feel having a shower, a fresh ship suit, and enough air to breathe. It was too early for lunch and too late for breakfast, but I went to the galley anyway. I figured I could probably catch something food-like from the watch cooler even if I couldn't get Cookie to feed me. I grinned. I couldn't imagine Cookie not feeding anybody who showed up hungry. I could at least get a cup of coffee. But when I got to the mess deck, I found a tired-looking Mr. Von Hickles waiting. He smiled when he saw me walk in, but waited until I got coffee and snagged a pastry before calling me over. Are you recovering? he asked with a smile. Yes, sir. Thanks for asking. Been a busy couple of days, but I'm feeling almost as human as normal. We need to do an incident report for the company's insurance to validate that we did everything possible to mitigate damages. Do you have a few ticks to answer some questions while it's fresh in your mind? He asked. Well, I don't know how fresh it is, I laughed. After all that CO2, I'm not sure I remember my name, but I'll give it a go. He beckoned me out of the mess deck and led the way to the ship's office. Mr. Maxwell and the captain were both there already. The captain smiled and said, Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Mr. Huang. It's a pain, but we have to do it or the insurance company quibbles over every million they have to pay out. I thought that was a joke, so I chuckled politely, in case it was, and briefly, in case it wasn't. No problem, Captain, I'm off until midnight. That was a joke, but nobody laughed. I thought maybe they didn't get it, or maybe it just wasn't funny. I sipped my coffee and waited for instructions. 
The captain nodded to Mr. Maxwell, who carefully started a recorder and listed off the people in the room, the date, and the time. Then we all had to go around the room and state our own names. After that, it got a little more interesting. The captain asked most of the questions, but I noticed Mr. Maxwell and Mr. Von Nichols were doing something like keeping score, but I wasn't sure what was making points. Mr. Wong, please tell us what happened starting just after 1900 on 2352 June 4. What did you observe? Where did you go? Only those things you have direct knowledge of, she said. She stopped me when I got to the part about turning on my tablet, even though I knew the network was out. Why did you do that, Mr. Wong? So I could see what was going on, Captain. The screen was blank, but it gave off enough light that I could see around me a bit. What did you see, Mr. Wong? she asked. Well, nobody else was in the passageway at the time, Captain. The power was restored, and I fell to the deck after that. Were you injured, Mr. Huang? No, Captain. I was a bit stunned, that's all. Please go on, Mr. Huang. When I got to the part about jamming the snout of the sniffer in the main air intake, we stopped again. Why did you do that, Mr. Huang? Well, Brill sent Diane and I out to check for gases in an environmental, so we were sure we weren't pumping anything unfortunate out into the ship, and then she asked one of us to see if anything were coming into the section, so... I stuck the nose of my sniffer into the intake manifold, and it was clear, but since we didn't know what was going on in the rest of the ship, I figured we'd better keep an eye on it. I couldn't very well stand there with it, so I taped it down, cranked up the audio alarm, and left it. Without the other sensor capabilities, it was the best we could do. Very logical, Mr. Huang, the captain said. Thank you, sir. Please continue, Mr. Huang, she said, and I began to hope I wasn't going to miss lunch. We got to the part where I went on to the bridge with the portable, and she made me pause to briefly describe the portable with brand name and full specifications. I was afraid she was going to ask for the serial number, and I didn't know it, but she let me jump ahead to the part where Mr. Von Nichols had me booted up. What did you do when he gave you the program cube, she asked. Well, I mounted it and began looking at the code. There was a problem with the scripts that needed some adjustments, so they'd run on my machine, and I fixed them. I missed one, so the initial load failed, but I saw where it croaked, and I got it on the second try. And are you a computer expert, Mr. Huang? Well, no, sir. I used to play around with them a lot back in high school, and I was particularly familiar with my mother's machine, sir. Why is that, Mr. Huang? She asked. Well, I used it a lot at home, and whenever she'd have trouble with it, I'd have to fix it for her. I did some upgrades to it for her. When she died, I prided myself on not choking there. I stripped the stuff off onto backup cubes and reloaded it fresh, I told her, and hoped she didn't go too far down the road of used it a lot at home because I really didn't want to try to explain that. Yet, in spite of not being an expert, you spotted a problem with the shipnet code and fixed it in less than ten ticks. Yes, sir, but it took two tries. It wasn't really much to fix, really. I wanted to be honest. Please go on, Mr. Huang, she said. We continued in this vein for some time, jumping ahead, stopping periodically. They were particularly interested that I thought environmental smelled bad and what that had turned out to be. We finally got through the idea of using the spine as a giant cartridge filter. When the CO2 level had started coming up again, we'd taken brooms out to break the crust. Why brooms, Mr. Huang? she asked. Because we had brooms, Captain. We needed something that was wide enough to punch a good hole without scattering the stuff everywhere. Something that would shatter the crust and permit fresh powder to come up. The bristles on a broom worked really well, and we had them handy. Well, if that's not enough, we had to go into about replacing the sensor packs and the scheduled maintenance and just about up to the point where I had to wake up to pee before we finally got out of questions. I was, frankly, getting a little annoyed, and lunch was already being served. Finally, Mr. Maxwell said, Thank you, Mr. Huang, and he shut off the recorder. The captain said, Thank you for your time, Mr. Huang. Dismissed. As I was leaving, Mr. Von Nichols said, Oh, uh, Mr. Huang. I stopped and hoped it wasn't going to be another question. Yes, sir? We lived, 
he said, and he winked. I smiled. Yes, sir, we did. They did let me leave then, and I was heading back to the mess deck. I pulled out my personnel jacket on the tablet, and sure enough, Spec 2 Systems, dated 2352, June 04, and oddly, endorsed by the captain, Mr. Maxwell, Mr. Kelly, and Mr. Von Eichels. Curious, but one more member in my ratings collection. Thinking about the odd collection made me think of finding a different slot, which in turn reminded me of what waited in Betris. I sighed at that thought, but lunch was calling, and I was going to answer before my stomach ate through my backbone. I had to trust Lois. Lunch was more than half over by the time I made it to the mess deck. They'd kept me talking for over two stands. Judging from the looks of things, a lot of the crew had eaten and left. I grabbed a plate and went through the line. Sarah looked tired but okay. There were circles under her eyes, but nothing like the bruised look she'd had even when she first came aboard. She smiled at me a bit tentatively and gave me an extra biscuit with a wink. Pip was a little worse for wear with a small cut on his forehead. What happened, I asked, as he dished up some rice and beans. Gravity, he said ruefully. I found the edge of the prep table on the way down. Ouch. I landed on a nice flat deck myself. You okay? I asked. Oh yeah, hard head, soft heart. That's me, he told me with a grin. Just a glancing blow. Sarah teased him by added, he dented the prep table, took engineering a stand to straighten it out. Yep, she was definitely doing better. You get back to work. Pip said with a grin and bumped her hip with his. He turned back to me. Still, I was luckier than some. Really? I asked what happened. You been under a rock? Pip asked. You really need to check your linkages with RumorNet. I laughed at that and said, I've been kind of busy the last couple of days, what with staying alive and all. Sandy fell wrong and broke her arm. She's only just come out of the med bay, but she can't stand watch, he said. And you know Jamie Schwartz, the blonde cargo handler with the big blue eyes? Oh, yeah, I said. I know who you mean. Well, she was here and got thrown up against the coffee urns and got a couple of burns. Half a dozen people have cracked and broken ribs from landing sideways on stuff. I had no idea, I said. The grilling I just had down in the office made sense now. There'd be a lot of insurance people investigating with all the damage to the ship, but more because of the injuries to the crew. Nobody seriously hurt, though, I asked. He shook his head. No, Sandy was the worst. I don't know what's going to happen there. I shrugged. We'll find out eventually, I told him, and he nodded. Biddy Murphy from Cargo came up behind me in line then, and we smiled, and I got out of the way and went to find a seat. My old bunky Beverly was there, so I grabbed the seat next to her. She greeted me with a tired smile and a soft, hey, boy toy. When she first started calling me that after Gugara, I used to find it embarrassing, and now I wished it were true. With her buzz-cut hairstyle, piercings, tattoos, and the smooth, deadly animal grace she had when she moved, I really wouldn't have minded being her toy. I laughed quietly. Hey, Bunky, how you doing? Tired, she said, nursing her coffee. She had a set of empty plates in front of her, but I'm okay. Pip told you about Sandy. Yeah, I said, what happened? She's on the bridge. Gravity cut out, and she was reaching for the edge of the console, trying to keep from drifting about when it came back on and threw her against the edge, arm first. Clean break. She'll be okay, but it hurts a lot. She can't stand once. She's on light duty for at least two weeks. Well, how's the section coping being short-handed, I asked. Miss Averill has stepped into her watch for the moment, Bev said. We'll be docked in a couple of more days, so we can see what happens there. The way she said that told me she also remembered what waited for us on Betris. We both sighed, and I tucked into lunch. Thanks for listening to Full Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from the Fox Hunters, an Irish slip jig originally recorded in 1984 by James Curran and available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, 
offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandis.org/golden.